0: All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I am uh, Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program, and I am delighted to welcome you today to our First Working in America event of 2017, yay, and also a very special Working in America event in that we are today launching formally our Good Companies, Good Jobs initiative within the Economic Opportunity Program. Um, In the Working in America series, we explore how work looks today, how work looks in different regions of the country and different industries for different working people, and we consider the challenges and opportunities presented to workers, business, and society as a whole by the changing nature of work in today's economy. Um, we are thrilled that we are able to have these conversations with you all about work in America today. And we couldn't do it without uh, the generous support of a number of funders. And I want to thank the Ford Foundation, the Walmart Foundation, the Prudential Foundation, the Sertina Foundation, the F.B. Heron Foundation, and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for their support. Um, and this session, as I mentioned, of our Working in America series is a special one with uh, thanks to the Hitachi Foundation. Um, we are launching the Good Companies, Good Jobs initiative as one of sort of three legacy organizations that were uh, that the Hitachi Foundation invested in as they were closing their doors to extend the work beyond the life of their foundation and really seed this work within uh, three institutions that will be. Uh, working together, and I want to just briefly um, recognize and, and thank colleagues uh, from the MIT Sloan School Investor Circle uh, also for also joining us here today. And you'll be hearing more from them in, in just a little bit. Um, but they are also f- furthering the good jobs good companies work at their institutions. Um, At the Economic Opportunities Program, our mission is to help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in uh, today's changing economy. And we do this by advancing strategies, policies, and ideas uh, that show promise in expanding individuals' opportunities to connect to good work, to start businesses, and to to build assets and economic security and the foundation that they need to have the stability to thrive in today's economy. so the Good Jobs, and uh, I keep saying it backwards, the so Good Companies Good Jobs Initiative, I'll get it right, uh, is an important piece uh, and uh, really a, a very complementary piece uh, to our work. It fits so well within our, our mission and what we're trying to do. Uh, because a key piece, obviously, of, of the work that I described is expanding people's access to uh, quality jobs. Um, so. So it really fits uh, extremely well with what we're doing. Um, we're grateful to the Haftaji Foundation not only for their financial investment, uh, but also because we, uh, able, we were able to bring Mark Popovich, who had been leading their com- Good Companies at Work initiative, to our staff to lead this work um, and really expand our capacity and bring his deep knowledge of what this looks like in so many different industries uh, to us here, and, and we just couldn't be more thrilled that he has joined us to lead this work. Um, I also want to thank uh, some members of the Hitachi Foundation Board of Trustees, um, who did a lot of work in sort of going through this process of closing the foundation and choosing legacy grantees. and. And, and, and we, are, we are extremely grateful to them that they put their faith in us here at the Aspen Institute um, and in the Economic Opportunities Program. And in particular, I, I do want to thank um, Pat Gross, who uh, unfortunately couldn't be here with us today. He's the past chair of the Hitachi Foundation Board and is also a trustee of the Aspen Institute. Um, uh, David Langstaff of the Hitachi Foundation uh, board is also uh, has a long time affiliation with the Aspen Institute. And I think uh, that really kind of demonstrates the way that our, uh, we had such mission alignment, really, with this idea of how can good business be also uh, done in furtherance of a good society. So um, there are a number of other programs here at the Aspen Institute that the Hitachi Foundation has touched over its many years. Uh, in particular, our business and society program, uh, the community strategies initiative, and the health, medicine, and society program. Um, and there are so many ways that that um, our works were aligned, and so so. This was really just um, uh, a wonderful, a wonderful sort of partnership yeah. that uh, that evolved over the course of the Hitachi Foundation's work. Um, and I, but I do also want to recognize uh, Shari Salway Black from the Hitachi Foundation because. So Sherry was not sort of on the Aspen Institute's board. And so that meant she didn't get to recuse herself from anything. So she did a lot of the work of uh, thinking through how these uh, investments transitioned. And I, and I really want to recognize her for that work as well. Um, I also want to mention that they and many others may be watching. We are live streaming today. Um, so that brings me to my logistical announcements. We are live streaming. Uh, please do silence your phones. Um, but please do uh, feel free to tweet. We have two hashtags today, our usual uh, talk good jobs hashtag as well as uh, hashtag GCGJ for good companies, good jobs. Um, we can we will get to a Q&A portion towards the end of our event today, so be ready with questions. But we also accept questions via Twitter. Um, so if you're not here to ask in person, uh, please go ahead and ask via Twitter. We love questions. Um, I think that gets me through my logistics. And so now it is my wonderful uh, pleasure and privilege to introduce Barbara Dyer for some opening framing remarks. Um, Barbara has been uh, an amazing thought leader in this space of good companies, good jobs. and um, personally, I just want to thank her for her support and friendship and leadership over many years. As she's really advanced uh, this work during her tenure as president of the Hitachi Foundation, she really did challenge many of us to rethink how we think about what's going on in work today and how to what what should, What should people be investing in and thinking about as they think about how to connect people who need opportunity to opportunity in the workplace? Um, So we are thrilled to have Barbara here. And we really look forward to continuing this wonderful relationship with her in her new role as executive director of the Center for I'm, I'm going to get your title wrong. Um, so I'm, But I'm going to call it the Center for Good Companies, Good Jobs at MIT. Um, and and uh, we're just really happy to have you here with us and for your continued partnership, Barbara.
1: So thank you. It is wonderful to be here. And it's great to see all of these friendly, familiar faces, and a lot of new people that I don't recognize. So I hope we get to say hello afterwards. Um, Let me first thank Maureen and the Aspen Institute, and Mark and the Aspen Institute, Mark Popovich, for organizing this and and creating this moment um, in the new year to think constructively and enthusiastically about the future of work. The Hitachi Foundation um, is now closed, but we were born in the era of globalization. We were, in fact, a response to globalization in the 1980s. And so we emerged at a time when our economy was experiencing enormous structural changes. Um, And part of our job was to think about, in this context, what it means to be a good business, and what do people expect, and what are people looking for, and how do you behave, particularly as a global company in that moment, um, in places all around the world where you've had very little familiarity. What is what is the definition of a good company in, global, in this global era? At the same time, um, we were experiencing enormous technological change, so it was sort of the convergence in our early days of vast changes in technology and globalization that was striking from our very beginning. And with also the mission to go forward and make make something happen in a positive way in the United States, the Hitachi Foundation began focusing on this question of upward mobility for low-income people, what was happening to people in the workforce, and was work working for the workers in this context of globalization and technological change and vast shifts. And we noticed that work wasn't working as a bridge to the middle class as much as it once did, that work For someone who is working hard, working long hours, but couldn't really quite um, pay the rent, put the food on the table, and they might be working at a hospital, for example, but they couldn't provide the kind of health care that they were delivering day to day to their own family. Or for someone who might be working in a hotel and can't get enough hours to make work work for them, but whose schedule is so uh, sporadic and unpredictable that they can't add on a second job to make work work for them. So work work wasn't really working for everyone. Um, And it wasn't working for a lot of employers who rely on the commitment and the talent of their people to attract those customers and keep them coming when they have high levels of turnover or they have skills deficiencies or they're having trouble recruiting. So work wasn't really working for a lot of employers either. So at the Hitachi Foundation, we said, well, wait a minute. It's not working, but that's not the whole picture. Can't possibly be the whole picture. There's got to be places where it is working. We have six million firms in America. We have a lot of people employed. There've got to be some counter examples. And sure enough, there were plenty. We went out to find those companies. In these very same industries where we claim work isn't working, in healthcare, in manufacturing, in retail, in hospitality, we found companies where work was working. And so we went out and we looked for them. We found them and we studied them. We wanted to know what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how we might be able to enlist them in making more of this happen. And we discovered some of the people that you're going to be meeting today. We discovered initially nearly 100 employers. Mark Popovich took the lead. We also discovered startups, early stage companies, that were trying to make work work as they were creating innovations. Uh, to address some of those big social issues in in the society, and Renata Haran Gomez, who was here today, helped us find those. And what we discovered is that work works when a company views its workforce in the larger context of its operations as the significant means to be, to success. That it's not simply an HR strategy. It's not sufficient to think of it simply as wages and benefits, it's engaging that worker and the entire workforce in this system of success. And while wages and benefits are necessary, they're insufficient to achieve the full value. So we said, what if, what if, as a foundation, we could understand this and try to make more of it happen because that's really where you achieve scale and foundations are forever talking about scale of impact. So what if we could be catalytic in making more of it happen? And what if not only that, if more companies were actually creating good quality jobs and making work work because it works for business? What if then investors, financial markets, labor market institutions, business schools, what if the whole system began tilting toward this kind of good quality job, good companies, good jobs? What would that look like? Well, lo and behold, that was our strategy at the Hitachi Foundation, and that's what we engaged in for a good number of years. And then it became time for us to wind down, time for us to close. This experiment in globalization that began in 1985 had run its course. Hitachi had decided to consolidate its philanthropy internally. We were uh, an outlier because we were the only foundation created by the company that was independent and in the United States. So funding um, ended for the Hitachi Foundation which was a reasonable decision for the company to make. And our board, led by Pat Gross, who was also a trustee of the Aspen Institute, engaged in this process to figure out how we wind down over three years and at the same time keep the mission alive, advance this work. Because we weren't finished. We just were not finished. So we created this strategy, the good companies, good jobs strategy, in order for this mission to advance as our doors close. And so today, we're delighted to acknowledge and welcome and embrace the strategy here at Aspen. It's also taking taking life at Investor Circle and at MIT Sloan School of Management, where I will spend my time. And it's just a natural, we decided to find Anchor institutions with whom we at the Hitachi Foundation have had, excuse me, I have a cold. Let me take a slip. With whom we've had a long-standing relationship. We knew that the work would continue with integrity, and, and it would enable this mission to advance in new ways with an even bigger footprint. So that's our hope, and that's the future. We imagine a future in which the 21st century worker regardless of the kind of jobs, whether they're in the gig economy or a more traditional economy, whether they're in small firms or large firms, whether they're starting firms or whether they're working totally independently of a firm, but they have confidence. They have confidence in their ability to do good work because they're in good jobs. And that companies have confidence in their workers to do a good job because these companies are so well organized that it just becomes the norm that quality jobs are what we do in America. So that's our vision. That's our hope. And I think this is where I sit down. Mark is nodding his head. (laughs) So thank you all.
0: Thank you so much, Barbara. That was wonderful. Thank you for setting the tone for our conversation today. And just briefly, I want to say, because I forgot to say, so what we're going to do uh, right now is I'm going to ask our colleagues um, to say just a word or two about the initiative that they are. Uh, engaged at their institution and then we're going to hear from sort of two good jobs good companies pairs uh, one in manufacturing one in healthcare um, uh, so we'll have sort of two 20-minute segments with them and then and then we're going to be engaging you in the in the conversation as well um, but right now I want to um, uh, start with a. Uh, Tom Koken. uh I think we have a, a mic here. Uh, Tom Koken is MIT Sloan School of Management and at the Institute for Work and Employment Research. And he's going to tell us a little bit about MIT's work. Thanks, Tom.
2: Well, thank you, Maureen. And thank you for hosting this uh, kickoff event for all of us. And we're looking forward to working with you and with Mark and everyone from the <laughs> Aspen Institute, as well as our friends at uh, Investor. Circle And and the best part of of, uh, this new initiative for us at MIT is we're gonna have Barbara with us to make sure that it all happens and we get it done (laughs) and do a a, a good job of of really pursuing this shared vision for building an economy that promotes and supports and good companies, good jobs, demonstrating that if we follow sensible practices, We can invest in our workforce. We can make it a high productivity workforce, a high quality workforce that can support good businesses with sensible profits, or if it's a nonprofit, uh, achieving its mission and its objectives, and at the same time, provide good jobs, careers, uh, and movement into the middle class, as Barbara said. That's really what we're about. We see our role as three-pronged to continue to do what we do at MIT. That is to do research on what it takes and why uh, uh, it's so difficult to see these kinds of companies diffuse to broad numbers, but see if we can understand those barriers and the opportunities and what it takes in different industries to to, uh, uh, manage in this way. Uh, We will expand our teaching, Barbara and I teach a joint course, I teach an online course, that tries to get uh, people engaged in understanding what uh, their role as leaders today and tomorrow uh, in building these kinds of organizations and relationships, and then uh, to be much more engaged in outreach, to bring the different stakeholders, the, the business community for sure, the entrepreneurial community working with our colleagues at Investor Circle, but also the labor uh, movement and the emerging worker organizations that are are happening around the country, as well as our friends in the business schools and other parts of the education community, and where possible, state and local government and national government leaders. So that's what we're all about. It's an exciting time. We have great partners. We're really looking forward to working together. And uh, let's see if we can't really make some progress uh, on this critical issue for our economy and our society. Thank you.
0: Great. Thanks, Tom. And uh, now we'll hear from Bonnie Mullenbrock, Executive Director of Investor Circle. Thanks,
3: Bonnie. Thank you, Maureen, and to Mark and Aspen Institute and everyone for being here today. Good afternoon. And at Investor Circle, our role is looking at good companies, good jobs from the start. So Investor Circle is an uh, impact investing network. We have 200 members, investors across the country and beyond that are investing in for-profit entrepreneurial startups that are addressing social and environmental challenges. And so over the past 20 years, our investors have um, invested over $200 million in nearly 350 companies that are improving the environment, education, health, and their communities. And so our role is to think about how to integrate these concepts across the board into our work with entrepreneurs and investors at Investor Circle. So it's integrating this into our enhanced entrepreneur and investor programming. And so we're thrilled to have Renata Gomez with us to be leading this work as we help entrepreneurs and investors think about human capital strategies as part of the DNA of these companies from the get-go when they don't, maybe don't even have very many employees yet. But you should be thinking about these strategies as part of your what we call impact DNA. How are you going to engage human capital in your company as you grow? How are you going to access appropriate financial company that matches your growth trajectory? The right capital at the right time that fits your business. And how, you're, how we can also help engage with social capital with our peer networks of entrepreneurs and investors to help these companies grow and while they're at it, demonstrate that quality job creation is, a, is an engine of growth for these companies that are gonna be creating the jobs of the future. So we'll be working with the entrepreneurs that are approaching us our network for capital We'll be developing a, a, a stronger community of the companies get funded by our network that to help their enhance their growth and exemplify these concepts. We'll be working with our investors to help them integrate this into their thinking so it's just what they think about and it becomes part of the due diligence and their idea of what impact investing is all about. And we'll be working with our colleagues at MIT and Aspen Institute to help share what we learn more broadly so entrepreneurs and investors all around the country and beyond can be integrating these concepts. So we're thrilled to be a part of this very important work. Thanks.
0: Hey, thanks Bonnie. And I think Mark's going to say a couple of words.
4: Thank you Bonnie. Um, first I want to thank the Hitachi Foundation, um, the leadership of the foundation, but also the staff that I've worked with for the last 12 years or so. Jeff White is here who headed up the communications team and. Um, and, uh, and, and we also have Tom Strong who's watching streaming online who is my partner on the Good Companies at Work which is uh, particularly engaged with the, uh, with the uh, healthcare work that we've done. Um, so I'm happy to be here uh, and working with a really talented team at, both at the Economic Opportunities Program under Maureen but in the broader community of the Aspen Institute. Uh, there are incredible resources here that I'm looking forward to understanding and engaging in the work that we're gonna be doing going forward. So my mnemonic for what is the initiative at the Aspen Institute going to do is A, B, C, D, and I hope you'll help me remember that, A, B, C, D, if I lose track. But A is all stars. Uh, Part of our work is about this positive deviance, finding companies who do the right thing get the great outcomes both for the business and for the workers that we care about, um, the frontline workers in those companies regardless of sector, regardless of industry uh, or section of the country. Um, B is business strategy and business challenges. We don't think you can really be effective at accomplishing those goals unless you have a really deep and organic understanding from the level of the business, business, a, a firm is our unit of analysis often, um, building up to a subsector, building up to an industry. Unless you understand those things, it's difficult to deliver what's necessary for a business to make its own good choices and then to provide the services that support them. C is capital deployment, because we think capital really uh, can do good and can do well if it aligns itself with great people outcomes. It takes people, process, and product in order to make revenue happen. And for a company to be successful and sustainable over time, they have to innovate in all three of those spheres. And what we've found is when they innovate in all those three spheres together, that's when there's the biggest lift both for the business, but also for the workers, the employees, the associates of that company. And then D is really disseminate, 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 is we really need to get that information out, first and foremost, into the hands of business decision makers, and then for a lot of others who are engaged with them in this endeavor to produce greater prosperity for the regions that we're in, for the communities that we care about. Maureen, thank you.
0: Awesome, thank you, thank you all. Gonna give them a little applause. because I'm feeling super lucky that I have all these wonderful colleagues to work with. Um, and so what we're going to do now to sort of set the stage for our Good Companies, Good Jobs conversation is to we have a, a short video for one of the companies, Ask Power. So we're going to see the, the video, and then I will be in conversation with uh, Avelia and Steve Case. So I'll ask you to join me on the stage, and we can go ahead and run the video. Thank you. Hopefully, I guess you decided you can't see the whole thing, but you can find it online. Um, um, but I think that's uh, I think I'm um, I think hopefully that gives you a little sense of, of Ask Power, and we're so happy uh, that we have uh, Steve Case, uh, managing director of Ask Power, and Avelia Cruz here with us to uh, talk about Ask Power and what it what it means to be a good company good job from the perspective of Ask Power. And um, Steve is multi-talented. He is also a translator. Um, so Steve is going to be doing a little bit of, of translation uh, with Avilia, who, as you uh, heard, uh, is more comfortable in Spanish. Um, so, uh, and the first thing, actually, Avilia, I wanted to start with you and ask you a little bit about um, if you could just kind of describe your job and, and what you do, and also maybe how uh, new technology has changed your job.
5: Como describir el puesto y como la tecnología ha uh, uh, cambiado su, su trabajo.
0: Antes que todo
6: quiero dar las gracias, buenos días a todos. Um, para mí ha sido una experiencia magnífica, trabajar para AXPOWER. So, tengo mucho tiempo trabajando para Spower, en, las oportunidades han sido muy grandes. Uh, el trabajo ha sido, um, anteriormente el trabajo era muy um, manual, un trabajo más pesado para el empleado. La, ahora el cambio que hemos tenido ha sido muy grande y positivo en cuestión de la automatización. Y ha sido un cambio muy positivo para mí, en cuestión de que ha sido uh, menos pesado. MOMENTO PARA todos. <laughs> 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 <Pardon>. <laughs> Sorry. She, We
5: and Evelia is saying how glad she she is to be here, and uh, she's shared these thoughts with me. So I hope I do a good job in in translating. In the past, we had a lot of pressure for output, and our work was manual and our work was heavy. Uh, some people remember the old dirty, dangerous, and and doggone uh, it! I don't want to work there. You know when that's the way manufacturing used to be. And Evelia said that in those times, you know, technology was a fairly limited part. And then when we started to automate, uh, Evelia got inspired.
6: Anteriormente, uh, nuestro proceso era enfocarnos en el cantidades. No nos preocupábamos por calidad ni por um, seguridad del, del empleado. So, ahora totalmente es diferente, nos enfocamos en calidad. Um, producción a uh, mejor producción eliminamos um, secuencias tratamos de ser el trabajo mucho más rápido y mucho mejor calidad.
5: Again, in the past, you know, the the whole function was efficiencies, volume, and it was very hierarchical. Uh, we had men carrying big things at the top, and they had the expertise and as we started to change, uh, and and as we started to change, we started to realize that, number one, we had a safer operation because the operator knew what their their skills, uh, what their challenges were, and that they (laughs) were able to work on process improvement and share it with their uh, their, uh, bosses and with their uh, uh, associates.
6: Ahora ha sido, el cambio ha sido muy grande, este, las oportunidades the
5: idea being that they have the confidence to, in, to demonstrate that they have uh, the, an idea about change. In the past it was, go back to work, we need more production. You know, and part of this is me having to sort of give up an old life and it's a little painful, but the point is that she and our investment and our workers, they began to have the confidence that their point of view was valued.
6: Es importante dar a los empleados la confianza de expresar su conocimiento de decir esto es mejor para que sea mejor productivo en cuestión de calidad y seguridad para uno mismo. Again, it's
5: important to build that confidence so that the individual feels empowered to 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 make change, and that was a cultural change for us. That's my little add-on.
0: Okay. Um, I, I actually want to switch to to sort of your side of this okay. story for a minute, okay? Okay. Um, because I think you know a lot of times, sort of this idea of technology being, you know, what the sort of narrative we hear is the robots are eating our jobs, right, or if you introduce technology and you need skilled workers, you need different workers than the ones that you have, and that's not the path that you chose. so can you tell us sort of more from having managed that process, how you thought about the investments in technology and how you thought about the investments in human capital and why you sort of chose the path you uh, did?
5: I wish it was that elegant. Uh, <laughs> I wish that it had been a, a brainchild that says, oh, you know, we need to think about the needs of the future. There was some of that. But <clears throat> what we experienced around the turn of the century was that uh, we were being asked by our customers, can you take 35% out of your price? Well, you know. When I went to business school, they used to think 35% was a pretty good margin. <laughs> and uh, we realized that, that, we had, that we had to do things differently if we are going to c- compete with low, low cost. And what we realized was high labor costs and low productivity is a, is a vulnerable position. So we invested on a two two prong front. We inve- invested in staying closer to our customers with a digital thread, enabling them to understand uh, to to co- collaborate with us on design and customization. And then we started to invest in automation. Thinking, well, if we just get the low, the labor costs down, everything will go back to normal. But what we found it was fascinating was we built the automation and started running and. When we got the results in, and it took a while, (laughs) the results were, wow, you can't keep up with your own manual labor, which wasn't what we were looking for. Mm -hmm. We looked a little deeper, and what we found was was that we had about 25 percent uptime. Seventy-five percent of the time the machines were not running. And believe me, I couldn't tell you why. But, you know, even though, though I'm a career manufacturer. So what we began to do was ask, and, and Evelia, what's great about her is she's a star. Wherever there's a problem, she's there. And you never, I actually learn about it often anymore after the fact. The point is, is we, we started to invest in our own people and say, all right, what, why can't you keep the machines running? And it was, A number of different problems. There was a quality issue. i got to go ask the toolmaker, and, you know, he's a jerk. And i got to go ask the (laughs) superintendent, and, you know, he's going to give me a hard time. So I try to solve it myself, but I can't really solve it because I don't have the training. So we realized pretty quick that automation in a vacuum was a failed strategy. And when we started to include our teams in solving these problems, we got up to 85, almost 90 uh, percent. You know, our downtime was 10, 15 percent, and suddenly our profitability increased, our competitiveness increased, and and we had a a happier workplace. We We had retention issues in the past, and they've gone away.
0: Yeah, great. Well, I want to I come back to you, Avalia, and ask you about that happier workplace because, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, learning things and having your job change can, be, can make people uncomfortable or might not be a great thing. Um, and so maybe you could say a little bit about sort of what you liked about that process, but also how your colleagues reacted and sort of how that process felt, you know, En
5: general. El sentido de amenaza de la tecnología, el sentido de que cuando estamos cambiando que hay amenazas o hay inseguridades.
6: Um, muchas personas creemos o tenemos el miedo de que al tener uh, robots o automatización vamos a perder nuestro trabajo. Pero no es así. Al contrario, nos ayuda a que nuestro trabajo sea menos pesado sabemos
5: <laughs> que wow that, that was that was that was worth the price of admission what she said was when we first saw the robots we were frightened you know I mean, we didn't we had heard that robots could eliminate jobs but what we what, what what we didn't know really was how we could contribute and that in fact it, puede decirlo otra vez Sí, uh,
6: nos puede ayudar a que seamos mejores a ser menos pesado nuestro trabajo
5: that, that they could actually have a less heavy and dangerous and unpleasant uh, a, a, a job experience by being a part of technology
6: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sí es um, y pienso que uh, todos tenemos la oportunidad de crecer de ser mejores de aprender cosas Son, de trabajo algo mejor.
5: She says, and it's, it's what she believes, is that everyone, everyone can tr- can contribute, and that that's what she's taught our people on the shop floor is when you have fears and when you have doubts, you should not, because I've shown you, and it's her, she's shown them, it can be done. Sure.
0: Yeah. Great, great, thank you. You're so one of the things uh, Avelia mentioned in the, in the uh, film uh, was also that, um, I say film because I'm an old technology person, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that her income advanced and things like that. And I, I'm curious sort of how you thought about um, compensating and rewarding and, the, and the, um, how, you, how you were managing that in the process of this transition, right? Um, sometimes it's hard when things aren't paying off right
5: away. Well, we certainly had had retention problems, and the retention problems especially started to occur as we grew because the scale of how we managed people was pretty good when we were small and we all knew each other, but as it began to grow and then you're just constantly under the more, more, more pressure, which I've kind of learned is really more, more, more faster uh, towards your death, Uh, (laughs) you you start to realize, too, that people are losing interest in those old line jobs. Mm -hmm. And where there used to be a flood of people who were willing to take low-income, low-attraction jobs, there weren't. Mm -hmm. So we started it out with the idea we want to improve our retention, and we started out with the idea that we want to get our costs down, but it ended up being, and I, I don't think we planned it this way, they love what they're doing. They make the contributions. They're excited about it, and the company benefits from it. Yeah,
0: yeah, great. Can you can you just give um, folks a sense of sort of the the range of jobs you have, what they pay, the benefits package, that kind of thing? You
5: think yeah, well, let me give you two seconds on the, the history. The history used to be you had a superintendent was a chief setup person, and he knows everything about everything. And then he had three or four people, and you know those people were making somewhere between 15 and $25 an hour. And they're really specialized people. If you know anything about tool and die making, it's, it's an eight or 10 year career, and it's very special people, so you never have enough of them, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the next level really was inspection uh, and uh, in, on the shop floor, and, 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 and those people were making before $9, $10 an hour, and the operators were making 7 $8 an hour uh what's changed is is that the new operator knows how to set up their own equipment. We haven't we've tripled in size, we haven't added a setup person. The quality function, we've tripled inside, we haven't added a quality f- person. The uh, ability to understand the tool and manage all that, so they're doing all that. I mean, we've scaled, we grew 300 percent, and we have half the people. But we have 50 people who are, compensated you know they, they, we're now still paying those few at the very top because they have specialized skills but today they have cad and cam and they're really uh, they're they're keeping up with the times and our operators are now making between 11 13 <coughs> 14 dollars an hour our key people are making somewhere between 14 and 20 and the ID, the ID, the idea you know and and we've become pretty clear that those costs are really, the investment value way outlaw, uh, weighs the, the increase in wage
0: Great. from a
5: benefit point of view of the company.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Avilia, could you com- comment on sort of how the compensation has changed from your perspective and what that's meant for you and your family and, and also maybe what you hear from your colleagues about what it means for them?
5: ¿Entendiste? Sí,
0: okay.
5: Bueno, eso sobre cómo afectó estos cambios en su puesto, en su vida y cómo es la comunidad, digamos, de la compañía. Cómo sienten ellos sobre el efecto del cambio en el, en el lugar de trabajo.
6: Uh, ha sido bueno, positivo en grandes uh, para la compañía y para mi persona. En Fuera de mi casa ha sido una mejor estabilidad económica, una cuestión de una mejor vida para mi familia, para mí.
5: She said that, you know, that she has more stability and her, you know, she owns a house now and and her it's more uh, stable for the family. Y sobre las dos casas.
6: Ah, ahora comentaba con uh, Mr. Steve que uh, hace muchos años cuando iba a la escuela eh, recomendaba la escuela me, me dice mi maestra tu escuela es como tu segunda casa y ahora X Products X Powers mi segunda casa Así lo veo.
5: So what she's saying is you know your your, your work or your school is your second house and what the, this wonderful spirit of innovation that she has, that not everybody has, but everyone can learn. <laughs> but she's, she's an adventurer. She goes wherever there's a challenge. That, that, that what she brings home from her house, from her second house, makes her life in her primary house
6: More
5: creative, more important.
0: Mm-hmm. and um, colleagues like any have, have you heard anything uh, among your coworkers about what they experienced or how things have changed for them
5: I like quiero saber el antes y el ahorita sobre la vida digamos emocional y el sentido del cómo es el trabajo
6: anteriormente era más frustrante de no saber realmente el proceso del de, proceso era uh, algo que tenía que uno buscar la manera de hacer el trabajo
5: Before so, it was frustrating to not know how it all works and not have anyone listening and not be able to contribute.
6: Ahora tenemos procesos, sabemos cómo hacer cada cosa. Es totalmente diferente, más fácil, mm-hmm. más rápido, <coughs> más seguro.
5: And now there are processes, and I might add, there are processes that she has written that that help the operator know how to make those contributions, and I think that really- you know, I, I want to say just just real quickly. My grandfather came to this country, and he was a phys- he was a shoe repairman. He was Harry a shoe repairman, and he was there during the depression. And he worked. Uh, he survived during the depression because people weren't buying shoes, but they were repairing shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I have always believed. I hope I get through this phrase without crying. I've always believed in the dignity of work. And what you said earlier about the transition from, from the, those who don't have and want, who are willing to work hard, to the middle class, to me is sacred to the American compact. We try to get there. We try to be uh, proud of what we've accomplished. And uh, I think it's with people like Avelia and with the, 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 the technological group, we have made a bridge to that better way of living.
0: Yeah, great. Um, Thank you both. Uh, Is there any sort of final thought you want to leave us with about what a a good company or a good job is or means to you?
5: Que significa buen puesto, buen compañía?
0: Uh,
6: Para mí un buen puesto significa uh, tener la oportunidad de tener un nivel alto bueno uh, um, en cuestión de habilidades de, de poder Demonstrate toda mi um, habilidad para la compañía.
5: My ability to demonstrate, or the ability to demonstrate all of my capabilities for the benefit of the company, is
6: this key? Me siento muy um, afortunada y uh, de poder a, hacer ese trabajo y de que me den la oportunidad de hacerlo.
5: She says she feels very fortunate to have that uh, as a part of her life.
0: Okay. <laughs>
6: Es importante darles la oportunidad a, a los empleados de, de crecer y de dar sus ideas para un mejor uh, nivel para todos.
5: It is important to give to all the employees the ability to grow and the ability to contribute. And for me, if I look back, you know, I I sold my business uh, uh, at Christmas last year. I stayed on, and I will stay on for some years to run it. And so I'm in that part of my life where I think about what really matters. And as a company, we really work hard. We have fun together. Uh, We deal with tough situations. But they have really inspired us that it's about collaboration. I think we've gotten out of our little... Silos and our little more, more, more points of view. And, and, and it's through leaders like uh, Avelia, although I've not yet found one quite like her, that maybe, uh, <laughs> we, we've, we've managed to make this transition.
0: Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Thank you. And I would like to uh, welcome to the stage. Um, Dr. Robert Eden, physician at Anne Arundel Health System, and Mary Leone, certified medical assistant at the Anne Arundel Health System. So welcome, uh, you, uh, I don't know, wherever they assigned you. <laughs> um, so wel- welcome to, to, to both of you. I do not have a video this time. So. Um, so, Dr. Eden, I'm going to call him Dr. Eden, so you remember he's a doctor. If you want to add your medical questions to your questions at the end, feel free. Um, uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about Anne Arundel Health System and sort of how things work and what sure, you do. Well, Anne Arundel Health
7: System is a hospital in Annapolis, Maryland. And um, actually, I think it's, how many beds is that? But Almost 400 beds, I guess. Oh, yeah, I think at least. that's correct. Yeah, excuse me not being a hospital person, I'm a primary care doctor and I work in an yeah, office and that's why I don't know all the details that's about okay. the hospital. But basically I, I've been very involved, involved in primary care at Anne am um, in my 33rd years year of practice. And, um, and about um, 10 years ago I got very interested in uh, social business and, um, and felt like, well at, at that time the hospital had a free clinic uh, for the underserved population of Annapolis. And it had um, the doctors would rotate through and see patients, but there wasn't any continuity of care. There was not any medical records that were electronic. It was all paper. Uh, And so it was kind of disjointed uh, care. And I felt like we could do better if we took a social business approach to that. Um, And so um, so happily, I was able to convince the hospital that was a good idea. And and so in 2011, we opened uh, the community, community clinics uh, which uh, are full-service uh, primary care offices with continuity of full, full-time staff um, and uh, night call and translators and everything. So it's been a very uh um, situation. But um, but with that, you, you have to worry about your uh, sustainability, obviously, in that, in that setting as opposed to a free clinic because it is more expensive to, to run that kind of practice. And so one of the things that we want to do is to uh, maximize our capacity for seeing patients. and um, And... So I started looking around and trying to figure out how to do that. I'd been in practice 20-some years and never had thought about that and uh, never had heard of working at the top of your degree or any of that. And so, uh, so in my searching, I ran into a, a Dr. Peter Anderson, who was working on the same sort of things. And, uh, and he had been able to, to expand his capacity by building a support team under him. Now, he had RNs. We were working with medical assistants, which is different. But he had trained them to help him with throughput so he could see a lot more patients, in essence. And so um, in our situation, I just uh, we, we went through the process of writing down what I, what I was doing during the day, what the medical assistants were doing during the day. Uh, what of those things required an MD, and what of those things did not require an MD, and to see if we could delegate the responsibilities uh, to the medical assistants as much as we could, um, and, uh, and therefore be able to see more patients. And um, and so the uh, and it actually works very well. Um, and so so we've gone from uh, medical assistants essentially uh, doing three vital signs and giving us a, a several word uh, chief complaint from the patient, so we know why they're there. Um, and certainly managing messages and we're calling in uh, refills and so on um, to now where um, they're doing so much more. They, when they bring the patient in, they, they actually take the initial history using templates that I have written up. I have about 500 templates for common medical problems. So they take the initial history, they take the initial review of systems, um, but they also check on, uh, do a medication reconciliation where they make sure the patient's medicines are properly listed in, uh, in the chart. And uh, look at preventative uh, items as well. And on the back side, of they, they will um, also uh, call to get urgent appointments for patients and, uh, and do other duties that we did not have them doing before.
0: Okay.
7: So, excuse me.
0: Yeah, because I actually, well, I, I was going to ask Mary to describe a little bit the, the job, sure. her job, and, uh, you know, what, you, what your role is at the working uh, with Dr. Eaton.
8: So I'm actually their site coordinator, um, but also their lead medical assistant. I've been at Annapolis Primary Care about seven, almost seven years now. Um, And so whenever our new medical assistants come on, I'm training them, making sure they're capable of performing any of the new tests in the office. They're comfortable working our computer EMR system and get them acclimated to the office and Mm -hmm. our policies.
0: Um, But you've been a medical assistant.
8: Oh, yeah, I still am. <laughs> and,
0: yeah, so, so maybe you could describe what the job of a medical assistant is kind of from, from your perspective and also maybe how it's changed. From many years ago,
8: it would just be you're getting their vitals and finding out why they're there. Um, and much different now. You've got a variety of jobs to do. You're also getting their vitals and getting their history, obtaining their medications, um, finding out when they last had their mammogram or colonoscopy, Have they not had it done, why haven't they had it done? Well, trying to help them through those barriers and, you know, get them over those hurdles as to why they aren't getting things done or why they don't have their medication, can they not afford it? You know, you are that main communication between the patient and the physician, so Whatever, you know, the patient's telling you, they rely on you to forward it to the physician. So when you come across barriers or, you know, reasons they're not compliant, we need to figure out why and try to help them through that. So it's not just getting their vitals and finding out what they're there for anymore.
0: Yeah. So and as you and you said you work with sort of training and, and coordinating things. Yes. Um, and I guess I'm am w- wondering. So as the job has changed, how have um, how has that uh, how how has that made it different in terms of the the people in the jobs? How have they responded to that? How have they adapted? I guess is what I'm trying to get a sense of. Or or has recruiting people to fill jobs become more challenging?
8: Uh, recruiting. Has become a little bit of a challenge. Um, we now only hire certified medical assistants because of Medicare guidelines. Um, so it does cut down our list of applicants dramatically. But the ones we get, you know, they are highly um, qualified. So their jobs become more important and actually they, they feel like they're more important. They're a um, bigger part of their team as far as, like, you know, their self-worth. and
0: Yeah, yeah, great. Um, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, one of the things people think about also with care is sort of the quality of care. And and, sure. and I'm curious, you know, as you were thinking about changing kind of the structure of how who's interacting with the patient around which questions and everything, you know, if you had concerns about what that might mean for the quality of care and, and what you've seen, how you've seen that work out.
7: Sure, I guess the the quality of care, you could be concerned about whether things were going to be communicated properly. Um, There were certainly people that raised the question, is a medical assistant? up to doing a medication reconciliation, um, that sort of thing. Um, And would they take the uh, history properly, or are you going to get fooled by the history and go down the wrong path? That sort of thing all came up as we were doing this. And I really haven't seen that be the case uh, at all. I would certainly confirm all the information we get with the history and the review of systems, but um, but I I have not found myself taking the, the wrong direction in that way, and the med reconciliation's been fine. That that's that's been good, and it really saves me so much time. Because if you've got a patient with ten or twelve medicines, it takes a long time to do the med reconciliation. I also have them set up the refills because sometimes you need ten to go here, and then a. Uh, Third, uh, one one month supply to go to another place, and that's a lot of time when you're a provider to set up all all that within the computer. So it's been uh, so the, that I have not had quality issues with mm-hmm. the, the MAs work at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And how has that affected sort of I guess the the patient relationship with the practice? Maybe you could have Well, advantage. I
7: I think the the patients um, see that they have a team supporting them as opposed to just uh, a, a doc as. Alone, because uh, because I, there's so much more interaction with between the patients and the medical assistants now than there was, and and also I'd say by we also so expanded. Normally, uh, pr- providers have had one medical assistant and two exam rooms to see patients in. And that was, gave you a certain number of patients you could see a day, but also there were predictable log jams. Like if a patient needed three shots, then your medical assistant was tied up for a while. If they had a difficult ear cleaning, then they were tied up for a while. And you could go back and have a donut and think about what you're going to do this weekend or you know, whatever, but you, you were losing, you were getting a lot of downtime from that that you didn't really want. By having two medical assistants and three exam rooms, those roadblocks are gone. And so somebody's tied up and the other one's moving patients through. And the other thing, uh, that that really allows you to do is to have them do a lot more phone work for you because now they're not, they can be on the phone for a few minutes and it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And if you want a loyal patient, get them an appointment they need it urgently and hand it to them instead of giving them a phone number and wishing them luck. Mm -hmm. And you've got a very, very loyal patient who says, my medical assistant and my team have my back. And so, so we really have seen that. So I think that patients have become very attached to my medical assistants which they were not in the past because there just wasn't that much opportunity mm-hmm. for that to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Terrific, that's great. Um, and I'm curious from sort of the medical assistant side, do you find that, um, how do you find those relationships with the patients that you know, and, and the response of the patients as you're doing more with them and things like that, how, how that works out from the perspective of the medical assistant?
8: It certainly builds the rapport between the medical assistant and the patient. Um, they do treat you more of as a team versus just, the medical assistant, you you work, you get close with the physician, so um, it's very important for the patient. Um, as far as having like the two medical assistants per physician, it certainly increases the productivity for the MAs to you know, do more of the phone work and paperwork and be able to make those calls and get the patient in right away for that urgent appointment and. Uh,
0: yeah, and can you maybe, um, you know, when we were talking on the phone and everything earlier, I think you, you had some anecdotes um, about just sort of the ways in which this way of working is is more satisfying to each of you or to to your colleagues. And and maybe uh, you could each share something about why uh, this mix of work is, is satisfying.
8: Well, for the MA, uh, for the medical assistants, it certainly decreases their workload as opposed to when they're working just one medical assistant to the physician, um, decreased burnout, less stress. Um, they can spend more time with that patient versus you know getting in and trying to get out the room. Um, you feel more like you've accomplished more, you've achieved more, and you feel like you're part of the team.
7: Right. And from a provider's perspective, it's it's nice to work at the top of your degree mm-hmm. you know, and not Try to figure out why the printer won't work today. <laughs> you know, I mean, that sort of stuff. That's just clearly not my job, but in the old days, that became my job. Yeah. And so uh, so I've really enjoyed that uh, very much. And uh, so, so that's good, and, and I can be much more efficient. I can keep up and not get behind on the schedule as much. So there, there are a, a lot of rewards <laughs> to it. And one, the only thing I would note is that it's interesting to me that we started with the clinics, and we were trying to expand the capacity of the clinics. So I felt like I was gonna if I was going to try this, and have the clinics do it, I needed to do it myself in my own practice. And in fact, it has been a huge benefit to my own practice about doing this, so it's kind of um, doing well by doing good. Uh, Was was a nice uh, outcome of that.
0: Yeah. Have you seen other physicians adopting this approach, um, or
7: right? My initially had one partner who uh, adopted it. We have six uh, docs in my group, and one other one wanted to do it right off the bat when we started, and uh, and she had equally good results with it. And the other docs were very uh, hesitant about the whole thing, and uh, currently they all but one. have taken up the two MAs and the three exam rooms, mm-hmm. and so so it really it, it's obvious to them uh, the benefits and uh, and I know that I have also been able to reduce uh, how much work I take home, which mm-hmm. is an important item. Yeah, yeah.
0: Can you can you share the story
7: about the neurologist? Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> so um, one of my medical assistants, uh, Stacy, is someone who uh, she was uh, she, she called the neurologist office for me. This neurologist will not see a patient urgently unless the doctor presents the case uh, to him directly on the phone. And so she had put the patient back, so she knew the history, and I came out and said I needed to talk to Dr. Hexter about this. And so um, anyway, so she she called, and she accidentally was put through to him directly as opposed to him waiting for me to get on the line. And so so she said, well, I know the case. I'll just present it to you. And so he let her do that. And so uh, he will now take calls from Stacy. (laughs) <laughs> um, which, which makes her, right, no, yeah, I, I, I'm acceptable, but she, she's awesome. And so so it, it was really a nice example. And it, she feels very good about that.
0: Yeah, wonderful. So do either of you, uh, or both of you, could you share sort of what does the idea of sort of a, a good company and a good job, what does, what does mm. that mean to you? Um, and uh, Mary, I don't know if you want to start.
8: Um, I would say it means you know not just taking care of their immediate um, patients uh, or the population, but also taking care of their employees and you know assisting them to build their career or um, expanding <clears throat> their knowledge. Um, they offer classes, um, college credits. They also do volunteer work and giving back to the community. So, it, it, not just serving their patients, but Serving their employees, I feel is big, it's a big part of a good company. Big part of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
7: And, and for me, being able to use my knowledge in a, in a meaningful way is important, and uh, and to have an efficient, good support staff really is ha- very, very helpful as well. So, um, yeah, I, I guess the one big thing that's happened at Anne Arundel, I think, is, and I'm, I don't know, if that might have happened elsewhere, but the flexibility to listen to one of your primary care docs bring forth this kind of crazy idea and, and do it. And, and also, uh, I, I just really appreciate their flexibility in letting me try this stuff out. Uh, now they did tell me if it if it failed it was my financial problem. Um, but <laughs> we, uh, you know, so so when I brought on the second medical assistant, we, uh, briefly we figured we needed about two and a half more patients a day to pay for that. And they said we'll, we'll let you do it, but it's all on you, and that's fine, and it worked out well. So same thing with the clinics. Yeah,
0: great, wonderful. Yeah. So I want to invite uh, Steve and Avilia uh, to come back up, and we're ready for uh, questions. You want to give them a slow applause? Thank you. Sure. So I'll invite Stephen Avilia to come back up for the questions. And I also want to remind people that uh, Mark, Barbara, Tom, Bonnie, and oh, Renata, thank you, Renata, are, are also here if you have questions about the initiative. Um, and we do have a, have a mic. So uh, yes, right here in the...
9: Hello. Okay. Good. All right. In my mind, um, um, I've been juggling because the first segment of the interesting event should be taking place down, you know, downtown on Pennsylvania Avenue, and um, uh, and having as a guest, you know, who who, um, individual who is replacing Obama. Now, the question I have um, specifically for uh, Steve. Yes. Well, I, I would like to see your views uh, on how uh, you're going to uh, handle um, during, how you're going to protect your investment because you invest, you know, very heavily on Evelius, Evelius and on some others to protect her to not losing her job. Because this is this is big time right now. That I'm not sure. Rebellious uh, immigration status, but perhaps she has a T- T- TPS or maybe a temporary protection status that allows her to work in the country, right? So this is a problem that is that is going to be affecting directly affecting you, your company, and some other companies around. Just because you know there is a new thing about this uh, the new administration going against the TPS program to cut it off and to have Evelius and some others deported from the, from this country. So not just that aspect, but also the emotional and psychological aspect, which is where, where it does where you go, because you're going to see more patients with, with you know with that uh, because as you know the largest illness in this country is mental health and stress, or either in in either order. So the challenge is to, you know, I wanna see your views, how you're gonna address and how you're gonna process a fast track approach to deal with this issue. And I wanna hear, if I may, for our MIT guest, how you're gonna bring it up there uh, to uh, come up with this as part of the formula and uh not I quite understand the last uh, okay.
0: question. So I think, I think if I have the question is, uh, are there concerns about changes in immigration policy particularly, uh, and, and also are there concerns both in terms of employees, and are there concerns in terms of just uh, how that might influence emotional health and, and stress?
5: Um, well, and I think it's important for Evelia to weigh in on this issue as well. I would like to just take 15 or 20 seconds to give you my view of the history of this issue. The history of this issue is bullshit. The history of this issue is that there was a lie. And the lie was that when the U.S. economy was doing well, people were let in. When the U.S. economy wasn't doing well, then everybody got uptight about it. And then they put a system in place, and the system is a lie. And the system basically said, as far as we're concerned, as long as you give me paperwork, then that's all we need. And so an employer like me spent 30 years being concerned that the lie would change to another kind of lie. Okay, What really I think is happening, and I'm cautiously optimistic, is the fact is Obama deported about 3 million uh, immigrants who had Criminal paths, and you know the fact is, if you come to this country and you have a criminal path and you don't have a past and you don't have a citizenship, you're vulnerable. This president's going to be a big shot, and he thinks he's going to get three million in his eight years. So the point is, it's a lot of of of, uh, upfront stuff. You know, if we do have four point seven percent unemployment, and we deport 11% of our people, we're going to have minus 5.3 unemployment, and then you'll have exactly what happened in the 70s and the 80s. The doors will open and there'll be another lie. What I think is going to happen, and I'm hopeful about this, and I, I believe in Dick Durbin, who's our senator, and he said this, you know, and he agrees with this, and I think it's also in, in, in line with what this president wants, which is we have to have a border that's secure, and we have to let people into the country when we need jobs, and we have to let them in with legal status, and status that is permanent. But unfortunately, the old lie, which says open the borders whenever we need them, we aren't gonna, we're going to turn the other way, is part of the problem. So the idea of closing our borders and saying when someone comes, they will be invited and approved is a solution. Okay. The old way didn't work. I'm, thank you for that. Okay. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too much
0: into immigration policy. I don't think it's what we're going to talk about, but I, I think it's. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting thing to think about also how people are feeling
3: about it. Hi, thank you for a great program. My name is Evan Davies. I'm an independent consultant. Um, The gentleman from MIT who spoke before the panel um, began used a phrase that I've never heard before, but I really loved, which was sensible profits. And my question is, how can that be achieved or accepted in this country where there's an environment where the mandate is to maximize shareholder value, which can end up with outrageous profits that can end up offshore and don't come back to this country to be taxed and can be used to the benefit of this country. Um, And secondarily, who decides what a sensible profit is? (laughs) That's a good question.
0: (laughs) I don't know if either of you'd like to take that. I'll
2: say something. Tom? Thank you. When When I use that term, I use it specifically to say that I believe the era of maximizing shareholder value in the short run is over. I think there's growing recognition of the costs of that strategy. There's growing recognition that we need to change. There's not a clear path for change yet, but it's only going to change if there is broad articulation of the costs and the benefits of the kinds of organizations that we've had illustrated here that you can create high financial returns. I don't know what the right number is and nobody does. And you can create good jobs, but it's a choice. And those choices have to be influenced by the people who have the biggest stakes in the outcome. So we've gotta have an environment where workers themselves are calling for this and have some power to really enforce a, a, a more disciplined approach on business. We have to have investors who are looking for businesses and organizations like this that are, uh, are, are following practices that produce good returns and good jobs. And then we as, as, as educators need to educate the next generation of business leaders and others to understand that they have choices, here's how they can do it, and by God those choices have predictable consequences and therefore um, they need to move in that direction. That's gonna be a long-term effort, but I think it's gonna take involvement of all of the stakeholders. And so, you know, Aspen's uh, 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 real contribution over the years is bringing multiple stakeholders together. We look forward to working with them to to have these kinds of conversations.
0: Okay, I see several questions, so I'm gonna take a few. I'm gonna take one from Claire back there with the remote question.
8: Question from Twitter, from Nate Maurer. Should companies make investments in work-based learning programs to boost employee satisfaction?
0: Okay, a work-based learning question. I'll take one
7: here. Uh, Hi, I'm Jacob Clark from the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. And my question is um, to a couple of different people, because I think it depends on the perspective, but both Steve and Dr. Eden talked about the real risks it took to take on this good company strategy. And are there any changes in the um, policy environment, tax environment, consumer uh, preferences, or capital environment that could make this type of strategy less risky? And for those of you who are leading the uh, legacy projects, what is your role on making this this transition easier for companies?
0: Okay, great. So can we change policy, tax, regulatory, consumer sentiments to make this less risky? And yes, Steve Dubner. Um,
10: Okay. Oh, okay.
7: Yeah, um, Steve Dubb, and uh, I just wanted to ask about um, employee ownership and you just went through or in the process of going through a conversion and, and whether ESOPs, you know, employee stock ownership plan companies or other types of employee ownership were, were, were considered and why or why
0: not? Okay, great. So we have a question on work-based learning, a question on Uh, ideas to make this uh, good company's good job strategy less risky and a question on employee ownership. Um, Any thoughts from the panel or from the panel here? I have two panels. (laughs) Um,
3: Okay, Bonnie? In regards to how we're all working to make this less risky, I mean, part of this is just, you know, finding (laughs) these examples. There's people that are pioneers that jump off the cliff. (laughs) Um, And and entrepreneurs are known for doing that, right? Um, There's others that find it might be a little easier once you have a path, once you see others who have done it. And so a lot of our work, the way I think about it, is when you can identify tools that have been tested and tried that others can then learn from so that there is actually a little bit more of a path. And then examples and stories that you can relate to and say, that is an entrepreneur like me. I can relate to that. I can imagine doing that. And if I can imagine it, I can take that step. And I have a peer group of entrepreneurs and a group of investors around me, and we all think this is a good idea. At least I'm jumping off the cliff with someone I'm (laughs) holding hands with. And and in the meantime, we're lowering the cliff because we're demonstrating how it's done and the tools to make that not quite as risky. But we owe so much to those who are game and have been the pioneers in making this happen.
0: Great. I think you might both be able to say something about work-based learning, because I think I've heard both of you describe things, but I, I know you, you have described things about how you've invested in your employees' <coughs> learning, and I don't know if you want to say anything well, about that.
5: Well, I, I tend to sort of come from the strong survive uh, approach to, to uh, policy, and I know that that's not, accept, not, not accepted by everybody, but I think what I hear is that when an in- investor says the strong are going to survive because they invest in their people, and here are the examples of that, that that's a lot more convincing than you ought to do this because it's the right thing to do. Now, you know, I mean, I would brought up to believe that's the right thing to do. Unfortunately, not everybody who's in a business ownership position yeah. is. Um, so I, 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 I think it's hard to legislate it. Mm-hmm. I think, and I'm new to the Aspen and everything, I think the idea that you demonstrate success stories I like to say the one thing that motivates every manufacturer, and it's kind of weird about manufacturers, is they're jealous of anybody else who has something that works better than what they have. <laughs> <laughs> and if so, I don't know that that I can think of a policy that would necessarily make it successful. but sharing success stories like you did with your mm-hmm. doctors,
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. right.
5: And, yes, and, and one thing the hospital does is, Quarterly, they have a Saturday morning training for
7: all the medical assistants through the whole hospital system uh, to bring them up and yeah, make even their knowledge base. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, I think, um, I think this is one of those situations where we're sort of translating our policy jargon to what you do because I think mm-hmm. I've heard you both describe ways that you support the learning of your employees in the context of the work that you do and how that helps them go forward. So... Um, and and how you make investments in that. So that's an interesting topic. Um, so yes, I'll go. I'll go one, two, three over on this side of the room. Sure. Um, so so uh, um, is it working? Can
10: you? <coughs> I'm loud enough. Doug. So, hey, Maureen. Thank you very much for giving us a great platform. It's really, really awesome. So not a question, but like uh, thanking again for Steve, uh, because I work for, my my name is Raj, I work for Johnson & Johnson. And even in the yesterday, one of the event, uh, which I was talking, saying that the diversity and the inclusion is the key for innovation. So no matter, and, and here is the proof, like you have proven that, like okay. in, investing in the, you know, your, your people and diverse people, because now we, most of the, us, we are working in a global organization. So we have to give in the opportunity to every single person. And I took the video, which I'm gonna go back and show it to my team. That diverse people, irrespective of your, you know, region, whether you can speak in an American accent or that, doesn't matter. So message to everyone here, first of all, thank you. And message, like be innovative. Mm -hmm. Work going to work if you're going to be innovative, because the new rule going to come, new government going to come. And next five years, world is changing anyways with the latest technology. So be innovative, be hard worker, challenge your limit every day. Great. Okay, so that, that's what my message and, you know, do your maximum today. So no matter what, attitude determines your altitude. So whether government is changing, technology is changing, your work going to work for you. That's the message for everyone. Thank okay. you. Okay.
1: Thank you. Um,
10: okay. I'll just say, globalism is not something
5: our current president is going to be able to stop. Globalism is a factor. The point is, we need to get all the best resources globally to do what we need to do to do it successfully. Yep. Yeah.
7: My, my question is for Steve and also for Dr. Eden. Um, well, actually two questions. The, the first is just, what exactly was the tipping point for you to, uh, to decide that you had to change? And then the, the second question is, um, are you perhaps discounting personality or disability a little bit, and, and if you are not, then what are the, the controls that you can put in place for uh, organizations that perhaps are, are less talented, so to speak?
5: Interesting question. The, uh, the, the, pin, this, the, pin, the spinning point was our technology had failed, and we're still under tremendous price pressure. Well,
3: you,
7: you could have said that you had just gotten,
5: you, you could have argued to yourself that you had just gotten the
7: wrong technology, and so you just need to go out and get different technology. Why did, why did you not do that?
5: Well, I think that's why I say it. If if it was that elegant, I would really, really be proud of myself. But the fact is, we we looked out to everybody and we said, "What do you think?" And the smart people came forward and they said, "One of your big problems is the smart people can't come forward in your company."
7: Right. In a, in a, sorry, think, go
0: ahead. wait. Oh, go ahead, go, go ahead no. and, then, and then I'll go you're to You're just that.
7: asking about inflection points, or when we decided, okay. Uh, with the hospitals, there are free clinics, we seeing about 2,500 patients, and everyone was pretty happy with that. But we pulled the data, and within the county, there were almost 100,000 people who didn't have good access to care. So I was able to go in and say, when you're taking care of 2,500, there are 100,000 out there, so don't tell me. Job done. <laughs> and uh, and that that's those numbers helped a lot in convincing folks to do it. Thanks. Sure. Great. Thanks for your question.
11: Um, thanks so much for this panel. I'm Ariane Higovish from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, and we have an initiative there to try and improve women's access to good middle skill jobs, particularly in manufacturing. So this was really exciting. My question concerns the role of formal certification and qualifications and how it fits into you know the workforce development projects and pathways to better qualifications and jobs and i kind of heard very two two very different strategies um, as power kind of seems to say, really you learn on the job. I don't know whether there are any formal certificates or how you integrate. And you, your story is the opposite, saying we now we used to take people who weren't certified, and now we've stepped up one. And so I just wanted to have a bit more discussion around that. Thank you.
7: Sure. <laughs> well, in, in terms of certification, it, it is coming from above the administration. I. I no one asked my opinion on that, so. <laughs> but, um, but, but I think it is a good thing to have people who are certified because you get got a better starting point with folks. So that's that's helpful, and so I haven't seen it as an instructive thing. With, do you have thoughts on that?
8: No, it actually makes them more you know, well-rounded and more informed of their their career. Um, with certifications, you're held to a certain um, Standards, yeah. yes, where you're recertifying every two years, you're taking college courses, or um, learning more during that two-year period in order to renew your certification. So that way you know you're fresh on new information and you're up to the state same
7: point as all the rest. And it justifies a higher pay rate, which is a plus.
5: And, and on the certification issue in manufacturing, There are some bodies that that have have been recognized as, as having produced some certifications that are recognized by manufacturers. But my take on it is that the history of training in manufacturing has been unsuccessful in many regards because as manufacturing needs progress and evolve, there hadn't been a connection with the community colleges. We're trying to Pull that together. I want to give you an example. We did a lot of what we used to be called CNC training. I don't know if you know what CNC C means, but it means something. It hasn't meant for about 30 years. It means punching, you know, punching a, a room of young ladies punching uh, computer tape that goes into machines that nobody understands. Today, CNC is everything from someone who knows how to do a CAD drawing and interface with a customer customer, to someone who can look at your processes and, and do all those things. We need, for me, a digital fluency certification that says Whatever it involves in the manufacturing organization of today, it involves some form of digital fluency, and I've been through the major parts of it, then you've got to turn around and sell it to the manufacturer because they say, well, what's digital fluency? I never heard of it. Well, it's all these things you need every day. So the history of a certification in manufacturing has been a little checkered. I still believe that it's got a great future, but those are the problems.
0: Uh, well, unfortunately, I see we're just about at time. Um, I really do want to want to thank very much our, our panelists and our colleagues here today. Um, thank you all so much to, for coming, and I hope you'll be back again soon to to join us for this series. Um, and we'll be sticking around a little if people want to ask a question. But um, but again, thank you all for
3: being here. Appreciate it. Thank you.